Thank you for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast. I'm Mark Stanley, your host, and this February we celebrated Valentine's Day, a holiday celebrating love and romance. Now, romance is an interesting thing in contemporary culture. Some people live their lives as if an intimate relationship is the most valuable thing attainable. Others are more pessimistic, thinking of long-term committed relationships as a financial trap or an emotional snare, waiting to spoil all the fun and potentially destroy your future. In today's episode, I want to talk about optimism versus pessimism regarding romance, and I also want to expose you to some poetry on the subject, as well as discuss the Christian understanding of love and romance. And finally, I'll end our discussion with a challenge to be mature and thoughtful about romantic pursuits. Thank you again for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast. If you enjoy our show, please like our Facebook page and leave, an, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Facebook Recommends. A positive comment and a five-star submission is really helpful because it causes us to show up on more people's recommended feeds. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you'll find our full catalog of previous episodes. It's really special to see your feedback and I sincerely appreciate that you might take two or three minutes to help us out. Finally, if you've benefited from our podcast or believe in our mission, you're welcome to make a tax-deductible donation to support our work on our website, wellreadchristian.com. If a, uh, if a financial gift would cause any amount of financial burden, please do not even consider it. But for those who are willing and able to give, it is because of your gift that the podcast can continue and even grow. So thank you. So here's a question I want you to ask yourself as an exercise of, of uh, self-reflection. Are you optimistic about the prospects of finding a fulfilling long-term relationship? Or are you pessimistic? And because this is such a personal and psychologically complex area of life, a lot of people are self-deceived about their own views. They've never thought about it, or they think that they've thought about it, but they feel different than they think. And a lot of people don't realize that they have adopted a viewpoint that they've inherited from their surroundings, whether that's their college environment or their parents uh, or, or you know, broader family or whatever. We just kind of think, I don't know, my philosophy of romance is just the normal one, and we have no idea that there's really no such thing. If you've had a beautiful long-term relationship modeled for you, uh, you may be more optimistic, but if you've been surrounded by divorce and heartbreak, you might be more pessimistic. Of course, though, your views have not been determined by your environment. You may have a deep sense of inadequacy that makes you feel like a long-term relationship is kind of impossible for you. Uh, or you may be surrounded by heartbreak and divorce, but you think that you're going to be the lucky one uh, in a field of broken dreams. Um, and you might have good reason to think so, by the way. I'm not trying to say that you don't. Whatever the case may be, if you step back and examine the emotions and the thoughts that arise when you're thinking about this, you might be surprised at what comes up. And I want to invite you to challenge these thoughts. And if you're a Christian, I want to invite you to examine them with the wisdom and vision of the Bible. Because romance and marriage is such a central part of life, and it always has been for human beings, by the way, you need to develop your own philosophy of romance. You need to answer questions like, what do you expect to get out of a romantic relationship? What do you not expect to get out of a romantic relationship? Do you think that you can be happy with or without romance? When looking for prospective mates, 
what are good qualities and bad qualities, what are deal breakers, and what are absolute necessities. And what's interesting about these questions to me is that culture has basically split right down the middle. And there are even Christians on both sides of this divide. There are Christians that are optimists, and there are Christians that are pessimists. And there are secular people who are optimists, and there are secular people who are pessimists. So let's start with the optimists. The optimists are always looking to run into the perfect person at the grocery store. They daydream about what it might be like to meet the one and have a glorious wedding and a fancy honeymoon. Or, at base, the optimist just thinks and feels positively about the prospects of getting, of getting married and living happily ever after. When I talk about an optimist here, I mean anyone from someone who is obsessed with their relationship status um, to someone who just generally thinks, yeah, no, I think one day I'll find someone and settle down. In one way or another, the optimist is a romantic. Christopher Marlowe in the 16th century uh, wrote a really amazing love poem that captures what it's like to be in love and to beckon your would-be partner towards a beautiful relationship. In a title, in a poem titled The Passionate Shepherd to His Love, Marlowe writes, Come live with me and be my love, and we will all the pleasures prove that valleys, groves, hills, and fields, woods, or steepy mountain yields. And we will sit upon the rocks, seeing the shepherds feed their flocks, by shallow rivers to whose falls melodious birds sing madrigals. And I will make thee beds of roses and a thousand fragrant posies, a cap of flowers and a kirtle, embroidered all with leaves of myrtle. A gown made of the finest wool, which from our pretty lambs we pull, fair-lined slippers for the cold, with buckles of the purest gold. A belt of straw and ivy buds, with coral clasp and amber studs. And if these pleasures may thee move, come live with me and be my love. The shepherd's swains shall dance and sing, for thy delight each May morning. If these delights thy mind may move, then live with me and be my love. Notice that the call to romance is essentially a call to adventure and the giving of a promise. Of course, so many people who echo these words are naive in what they are getting themselves into, but still the spirit of optimism is there. The passionate shepherd wants this girl to live with him and be his love and he outlines all the things that he promises to do to woo her if she accepts. He says that they will sit upon the rocks and see the shepherds feed their flocks. They'll watch the river and hear the birds. He will make her a bed of roses and give her perfumes and make a beautiful place for her. He'll make her a gown of the finest wool and slippers to keep her feet warm and make buckles of the purest gold. He'll make an incredible bed that is soft and ornate. And then in the morning, him and his shepherd friends will dance and sing each May morning. And if these delights thy mind may move, then live with me and be my love. I like it. When a romantic person hears this, they think, Aw, that's so sweet. How romantic. The guy is doing all these sweet things for the girl in order to woo her, and this call to a romantic adventure seems promising. It really is a lovely poem. But a poet named Sir Walter Raleigh was captivated by Christopher Marlowe's poem, and he crafted what he thought to be the perfect counterpoem. 
he imagined how the recipient of this poem might respond, and here's what he wrote. In the nymph's reply to the shepherd, he says, If all the world and love were young, and truth in every shepherd's tongue, these pretty pleasures might me move to live with thee and be thy love. Time drives the flocks from field to fold, when rivers rage and rocks grow cold, and Philomel becometh dumb, the rest complains of cares to come. The flowers do fade, and wanton fields, to wayward winter reckoning yields. A honey tongue, a heart of gall, is fancy's spring, but sorrow's fall. Thy gowns, thy shoes, thy beds of roses, thy cap, thy kirtle, and thy posies, soon break, soon wither, soon forgotten, and folly ripe, and reason rotten. Thy belt of straw and ivy buds, the coral clasps and amber studs, all these in me no means can move to come to thee and be thy love. But could youth last and love still breed, had joys no date nor age no need, then these delights my mind might move to live with thee and be thy love. You can tell in this poem that there's a wistfulness, as if the author is sighing and saying, if only love wasn't a lie. The line reads, But could youth last and love still breed, had joys no date, nor age, no need, then these delights my mind might move to live with thee and be thy love. In Relay's poem, the nymph, too, is a romantic, but she is too wise to be caught by the hormones and brain chemistry. Soon break, soon wither, soon forgotten, in folly ripe, in reason rotten. The pessimist Sir Walter Relay is saying that romance is a fleeting feeling, that in folly is ripe, but in reason is rotten. It's cutesy to have long romantic walks by the river, but they don't last. The rivers rage, the rocks grow cold, the rest complains of cares to come. The pessimist says, yeah, your romantic adventure sounds great, but soon the utility bills start to come in, and the family business of taking care of sheep starts to not look so great, and shepherds start to complain about cares to come. And then what happens? Is that thy belt of straw and ivy buds, the coral clasps and amber studs, are not enough to compensate for the emotional turmoil. And there's a reason that I'm not the poet. <laughs> and let's be honest, if you're not tightly bound within a Christian community, or perhaps another religious community, then the dating scene often looks pretty bad. Hookup culture and dating apps are not usually conducive for long-term happy relationships. And with the rise of social media and the destruction of common community, we were all pretty isolated even before the government-mandated lockdowns and social distancing. The relationship between men and women in the West has gotten pretty bad. Statistically, a huge percentage of marriages end in divorce. So that right there should prove that time drives the flocks from field to fold when rivers rage and rocks grow cold. Divorce destroys people financially. Kids are surely nothing more than a massive chore. And really, why do you want to give up your sexual freedom anyways? When contemporary secular people have pornography to satiate their biological drives, 
and they don't believe that starting a family is even a fun or fulfilling thing to do, why in the world would you be interested in a long-term relationship? Eventually, the image of God bleeds through, though. People end up playing house one way or another, moving in with their longtime boyfriends or girlfriends for a resemblance of peace and stability. Of course, they do not actually commit with marriage vows. After all, it's smart to leave the escape hatch open just in case love is, after all, and folly ripe and reason rotten. Why commit to just one person if instead you can just get all the benefits of a long-term relationship without any of the commitment? You never know when someone might just change, or maybe your needs change. Forever is a long time, and as long as you do the things for me that I need, and I do the things that you need, let's just see how long this works out. I really think that's how most people think. And honestly, if I didn't have a richer idea of what marriage is, I wouldn't really blame them for thinking that way. Even some Christians can fall into a pessimism about romance. I've had mentors who were close to me say things like, you know, marriage is not really meant to make you happy, it's meant to make you holy. And of course, I agree with that. And you can't rely on any human relationship to make you ultimately satisfied. But wisdom is not found with a commitment to pessimism. We want to have fulfilling and rewarding long-term relationships that do two things simultaneously. One, expose our character and challenge us to grow in ways that we would not have otherwise done. And also, to, two, to delight in the beauties of marriage, which is, after all, a reflection of God's relationship with us. How about a new slogan? Marriage is not meant to make you ultimately happy, but is meant to help you understand the kind of relationship that Christ wants with us that will make you ultimately happy. This is the core idea that I want you to walk away with. When God created human beings, he could have made us reproduce in any way imaginable. But there's a reason he said that it was not good for man to be alone. From the beginning, we were designed for family. And when I say family, you single people, I don't want you to imagine your parents. I want you to imagine a family that you start by meeting a prospective partner and having children, which is a profoundly good thing because it reflects the image of God. God commanded Adam and Eve to go forth and multiply because the relationship between the husband and the wife is a reflection of the relationship that Christ has with us. In Ephesians 5, Paul quotes the instantiation of marriage, which is from Genesis, reading, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. End quote. And then Paul says, in Ephesians 5, after quoting this, he says, quote, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. End quote. Also, there's an entire book of the Bible called the Song of Songs, Remember, the Bible is a library, and one of the books in the library is a massive love poem. I mean, massive, it's, I think, eight chapters? That's a long love poem. Song of Songs is a poem about a husband's love and pursuit of his wife. And it's a reflection of Christ's love for the church. A love poem, inspired by God and written by the Holy Spirit, with some, I'm not going to say erotic content, but some symbolism that's on point I guess that's homework go read it for yourself and you'll know what I mean it's kind of hard to describe without 
just reading it, but anyway, it's important for you to recognize that when God is trying to communicate the love that he has for us, he uses the analogy of a the love that a husband has for his wife. And the love that a husband has for his wife produces children, and that's another way that God loves us. And he created human beings who reproduce that way so that we could see every facet, fa- facet of God's love. When God wants us to see the love that God the Father has for God the Son, how does he do it? He does it by creating human relationships that mimic a fraction of the intensity of emotion and power that exists in the divine being. Everything about the family unit is a reflection of the image of God. A parent's love for their child is a reflection of God the Father's love for God the Son. When you see a parent rush into a burning building to save their child, or you see a child's face glow at the embrace of their father, or you see a mother's soft cry at the suffering of their child. All of these things are a reflection of God's love. You should see that and infer that's, that's what God is like because we are in God's image. The reason that God made human beings biologically operate and propagate in terms of family is because it's a reflection of how God operates. We see God more fully and more clearly because we are created within a family unit. And now perhaps you're beginning to see why the perversion of sex and the destruction of the family is so important to Satan and the forces of evil. Sex is supposed to be an act of selfless wooing and an emotional kinship and a physical pleasure which affirms and celebrates unity and harmony and goodness and ultimately produces a new, unique image bearer of God who will in turn create more opportunities for love and joy within the family unit. The world, though, wants to smash this vision of sex and replace it with transactional, self-fulfilling urges little more than a biological release and some sensational pleasure. Sex is so powerful and so beautiful as a reflection of God's nature that Satan must trash it and reduce it to nothing more than biological sensations and cravings, no different than sugar for the tongue. And I want you to recognize, if you're a Christian, that you have probably drowned in this degradation of sex since you were a child. Whenever you think of sex as something to take, or you think of children as an obstacle to your real happiness, perhaps in your career, or you think of marriage as a ball and chain or some kind of end of of freedom, you are reflecting a tarnished and incomplete view of family and therefore a tarnished and incomplete view of God. And I want you to know that family is at the core of reality because at the core of reality is a God who modeled family after himself. Family is at the core of what it means to be human, and what it means to be human is to reflect the image of God. But don't get carried away. Family is at the core of what it means to be human, 
because what it means to be human is to reflect the beauty and love and majesty of God. And while it is true that human beings exist to mirror God back to him, it's also true that people can do that individually without being given in marriage. Jesus said that there will be no sex or marriage in heaven. I take that to be because we won't need it. We will feel the selfless wooing and the emotional kinship with God and the bliss of being unified and happy and have a deep understanding um, and, and all of these things. We, we will feel that with each other without the need for temporary physical contact. And a lot of the baggage that comes with that temporary physical contact. So if you've been listening to this and you've been feeling discouraged uh, and you relate more with the nymph's reply to the shepherd or you've had a really toxic relationship with your family, I still want you to know that you can reflect the image of God as an individual because of your unique capacity to be loved and to reciprocate the love of God to others. Marriage ends with death. And something much greater than marriage will replace it, namely union with Christ. That spiritual union is available right now to anyone, including single people, who have a stronger bond with each other in Christ than they do in marriage. In fact, Paul basically says that life is too short to get married. It's better to be single and be completely devoted to the cause of spreading the gospel and building the kingdom. But for those who burn with passion, he says that they should take a believing spouse and mimic the dance of love that God uses to illustrate his own love. Husbands have their unique role to play, and so do their wives, and each reflect the love of God in a different way. The last thing I want to say is that there are some Christians who really do idolize marriage. If your heart sank when I said that there won't be marriage in heaven, then you have fallen in love with a shadow of God instead of God himself. As C.S. Lewis said, you're like a child whose greatest love is chocolate. And when we invite him to spend a day at the beach, he only asks if there will be chocolate at the beach. Marriage is a tool to get you to see the love of God. And that tool is ultimately disposable and unnecessary. Some Christians put marriage on a pedestal and act like real life begins once you get married. And single life should revolve around finding the one. But the truth is, though, that the reason you exist at all, you, whoever you are, whoever is listening to this, the reason that you exist, no matter what year you're listening to this, you exist in a time and place in history because God decided that your existence will make God look good. And it's up to you whether God's glory will shine through you because you will reflect God's good nature back to him and therefore affirm his goodness, or whether you'll make God look good because you hate and reject him and you will be the object of God's justice. Either way, your existence does not revolve around you. And your desire to be affirmed in marriage or romance is not ultimate. Existence revolves around God the Son and God the Father. And he created marriage and family 
in order for you to see the beautiful and glorious thing that is the triune God. And because that is true, your life will ultimately find satisfaction in a robust relationship with God, not a robust relationship with someone who ought to merely remind you of God. One of my favorite poems is by John Donne. It's called The Bait. It was written a few years after Marlowe and Relais uh, wrote their romance poems. Dunn listens to both of the poems that I had previously read uh, about romance, and he crafts his own poem about Christ. And basically what, Don, what, what Dunn says is that the relationship that is ultimately fulfilling is not one between a man and a woman, but between man and God. And you can hear my breakdown of that poem and the implications that I think that it has for how Christians should portray their Christianity. Uh, you can hear that in episode 5, titled The Beauty of Christianity. In our episode on romance, though, it seems fitting to end with a poem about the greatest and most fulfilling romance of all time, the redemption of God's people through the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. John Donne writes, Come live with me and be my love, and we will some new pleasures prove, of golden sands and crystal brooks, with silken lines and silver hooks. There will the river whispering run, warmed by thy eyes more than the sun. And there the enamored fish will stay, begging themselves they may betray. When thou wilt swim in that live bath, each fish which every channel hath, will amorously to thee swim, gladder to catch thee than thou him. If thou, to be so seen, best loath, by sun or moon, thy darkness both, and if myself have leave to see, I need not their light having thee. Let others freeze with angling reeds, and cut their legs with shells and weeds, or treacherously poor fish beset with strangling snare or windowy net. Let coarse bold hands from slimy nest the bedded fish and banks outrest. Or curious traitors sleeve silk flies, bewitch poor fishes' wandering eyes. For thee thou needest no such deceit, for thou thyself art thine own bait. That fish that is not catched thereby, alas, is wiser far than I. Thank you for listening to the Wild Red Christian Podcast. <laughs>